Hello, and welcome to episode 60 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as usual is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has over 130-minute or less episodes with various characters from around the tennis world. So if you're not already familiar with his podcast, you should check that out as well. Lots of good material to listen to there. The last week of tennis has been, as usual, action-packed. Uh, two small ATP events in Munich and Estoril, and two small WTA events in Rabat and Prague. And we're already underway at the Madrid Masters slash Madrid Premier Mandatory uh, joint event. The women started their main draw action on Saturday and the men on Sunday. So the women's second round is already underway. So pretty much all the big names are in action there, and we will talk about that. But I want to start with last week's tennis, specifically in Munich. The finals in Munich were between Christian Garin and Matteo Berrettini, two names that I don't think we could have predicted we'd be talking about nearly as much this year. Berrettini was coming off a title in Budapest. Garin uh, won this match and made that was his second title of the year. Only three guys have won multiple titles this year. It's Federer team and Christian Garin, as of course we all expected. And Carl, I'm interested in, it seems like the clay court events this year are being dominated by a wave of guys that like Garin Berrettini, we didn't think too much about before before this season. I guess we've seen Dominic Team excel, and we could have predicted that. But Garin's been such a big factor. Laszlo Gera won the, the tournament in Rio. Berrettini won in Budapest. Do you think these guys are are legit? Like we're going to be seeing them compete at this level um, for the next several years, or is this just sort of a, a a blip in the the level of clay court competition that some weaker names are taking advantage of? Well, none of the guys you just named have beaten Nadal on clay, so maybe they're not quite at that level. But uh, some of them still have some some nice wins that maybe make the accomplishments more legitimate, including in in Munich, Garin beat Alexander Zverev in a very close quarterfinal, uh, and then he beat last year's French Open semifinalist, Cecinato, who is very strong on clay in the semi. And he, and he beat Diego Schwartzman just to get to his Barrett. Oh, of course, the biggest clay scalp of all. So a very nice run. Uh, and then Berrettini himself, I mean, there's some circularity here, but he he is very strong on clay too. So for a 250, it was, it was quite a title. Um, and... It seems like like it definitely feels more real the more tournaments they're they're doing this in just because we're talking about like different continents different conditions even if it's all clay and uh, Garin especially has been pretty consistently strong uh, throughout I mean he he made the final in South America and Sao Paulo in North America and Houston and then in Munich and and won two of those so and you know he's you won the French Open juniors, so he certainly had some some expectation of being a strong clay player for a long time. The, the, the measure that takes intuition and anecdote and and you know individual results and tries to put it all together into something predictive is is Elo. So maybe I mean I think one of the reasons that this is a good opening topic that you chose 
deliberately is that these two guys actually are rated quite well on clay. Um, so, I mean, to you, does that say, yeah, they are, this is a legitimate result, even if it may, might not last onto, let's say, the grass in the North American hard courts? It's really tough to say. We've been bouncing some ideas back and forth about that, and I'm having a hard time knowing how much to read into the surface-specific surface ratings. So just to, to give you some background here, if if we look at my, my ELO ratings and sort by clay-specific ELO, so we're talking about a rating that's generated only by looking at clay court matches, not taking, not taking non-clay matches into account at all. By that rating, of course, you've got Nadal, Team, Djokovic at the top, Zverev and Nishikori behind them, rounding out the top five. And then you have Berrettini, number six, Garin, right behind him at number seven, and then Guido Pella at number eight. Three guys who, judging from their results this year, deserve to be there, but it seems really premature to to say that Berrettini is the sixth best player in the world on this surface or that Garin is the seventh best player in the world on this surface. So one problem with the clay court specific ELO is that I never optimized it to, to stand alone. Like, so with, with any ELO rating, you've got to choose one parameter, which commonly referred to as the K factor, which is going to determine how much one result is going to, to swing the... Uh, to swing a player's rating. So so at one extreme, it, a player's rating is pretty much what it is. Like if you're Rafael Nadal with a thousand matches under your belt, like one loss or one, one win isn't going to change your rating too much in, in either direction. But if you're new on tour and you score a big upset, you're going to gain a lot of points from that. So what it seems to me, like that my instinct looking at these high numbers for Berrettini, is that the K factor is off, that they've gotten too much credit for their wins so far. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the rest of the rankings stand up pretty well. I mean, they, if anything, you'd expect, like, if you're, if you're using a K factor that's optimized for a bigger sample of matches, for a whole season's worth of matches instead of just clay court, you would expect the K factor to limit how much players' ratings would change. Uh, so you would expect it to take too long for a player like Berrettini or Garin to to penetrate the top of the, the clay court rate rankings, not the opposite, which is what I think we're seeing here. So given that my instinct is backwards on that, I wonder if maybe that's right. I mean, the, the question then is, like, maybe we're giving too much credit for wins at 250s, maybe Zverev cares more at, at bigger events, or Schwartzman cares more at bigger events, so beating those guys doesn't shouldn't count for as much so maybe we'll we'll see Berrettini and Garin struggle when they're playing on bigger stages at, at higher profile higher award events I mean I think if I remember right Berrettini took a set from team at Roland Garros last year but he hasn't done much else apart from 250s do you think these guys are legit contenders at Roland Garros given their their clay elos are so high well, they might be both, you know, in the top 10 for contenders if we accept the ELO and, st and also not have a significant chance if, if, the, if Nadal and Djokovic are better than they've looked so far on clay and, and hog all the, the win probability and then the other guys above them take most of the rest. So it legit contender, like probably not, but among the top 10 or 15 contenders, that's, that's plausible. Um, 
with the caveat that, as we said last week, like we've got the two big mandatory masters still to come. And that'll give us a lot more information about the field. The, you know, one thing I wonder is you, you had the chance to build ELO in the way that you felt was best. Did you tinker with whether different levels of play should have different uh, weights? I mean, should a 250 in general count for less because maybe Zverev or Schwartzman cares less or did it turn out not to be the case? I don't think I tinkered with that explicitly when I was optimizing ELO. I have experimented with it in other contexts and usually the first thing I tried was whether to weight Grand Slams as more important and that's partly because players seem to care about them more and partly because for men they're best of five so you'd think just if only because of the format that they're best of five instead of best of three you'd expect that those those results would be more significant like they'd be more likely to reflect underlying skill than a best of three match and when i did mess around with algorithms that would weight grand slam matches more heavily it didn't improve the predictiveness of the system and that means that even a best of five versus a best of three uh, shouldn't be worth more. So I don't think I've explicitly looked at two, at two fifties. I, I do remember something, maybe it's something I did or something that someone else played around with that the first round or two in two fifties can be misleading. So if maybe the Schwartzman match or, or the, the times where a, a guy is getting a buy into a second round of a, a, a two fifty then maybe their performance is is less reliable or just flat out not as good in those matches. Um, but in general, I think we're pretty safe to assume that a win over Zverev is a win over Zverev, regardless of whether it's the quarterfinals of a slam or the quarterfinals of a 250. Which Yeah, which is fascinating. I mean, I think there is usually an asterisk placed on results against top players at small tournaments. I mean, it's, it's unusual for top players to play small tournaments. If, if Munich were not in Zverev's home country, he'd be pretty unlikely to play it probably. So, um, it's, I guess it's, it's pretty pleasing for fans who follow the, the tour throughout the year, including when there aren't any tournaments bigger than a 250 to know that the players who are there seem to be, uh, giving enough effort for the result to be meaningful as meaningful as elsewhere. Um, one thing, there were two things I wanted to point out or ask you, uh, related to what we've been talking about, because we've been, we've been talking about the Munich finalists within this bigger pool of players who have had really good clay season so far without big name recognition or very good rankings going into them. Uh, and I just wanted to see like what we think that pool is just so we're, we're, we're talking about the same players. Like who do you, you mentioned Jared. Uh, are there others you think kind of fit that that group? Well, of the ones who've emerged this year, it's it's Jera, Garin, Berrettini. I think that's your your main trio. Uh, I was thinking maybe Munar too. Yeah, he hasn't been as successful. Yeah, and he's been only moderately successful against what looks like pretty weak fields. Like you mentioned the the circularity of trying to judge the Garin Berrettini final. Uh, Munar has has gotten some wins that in other years might not have gotten him to as, as far as he did in the tournaments that he's made small breakthroughs in. I think we still have to put Cech and Otto in this category. 
Okay. Uh, both because he is such a clay court specialist and because it's only a, I guess, a, a eight month difference or so between his breakthrough and the, the breakthrough of the guys in South America. Maybe we can throw Lajovic into the same category. I mean, he seems to be, I guess it's, his ELO differences on Harden Clay are not as dramatic as these other guys, but we saw him make the Monte Carlo final and have some success in the, the Clay Masters last year. Um, there, it's, not a, it's, it's not a big pool. You're right to ask that question. Um, I mentioned Pea as well, so he, he's in there too. And, and Casper Ruud, they're also not quite successful enough. Well, Casper's so so tricky to get a handle on. He he pummeled Benoit Paire in the first round of qualifying on Saturday, I think it was. And then yesterday, he played Albert Ramos, won the first set 6-2, served for it, had a match point in the second set, lost the second set in a tie break, lost the third set 6-1. And may, I'm probably just... I'm not invested in Kasparud's career particularly, but I'm very aware of it um, by being in Norway and just having followed him for so long. It seems like there's an awful lot of ups and downs like that. And since we are talking about his, his results as qualifying losses and he's still outside the top 70, I think I think we can we can leave him out of this discussion. It still seems it is it is notable. I mean, it's like a group of three to seven, which is a lot for for break. Oh, you know, another name who came to mind. Maybe I'm I'm really on the fringes here of guys who've made a quarterfinal or two, but like um, Lorenzo Sonego as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little fringy. Okay, yeah, I'm getting I mean, fringy. But a, a bunch of guys have had surprisingly good clay seasons in an era where we where we generally don't think of there being that many clay specialists. So. And there's there's notable. circularity in that too because I, I agree there's not there's not a lot of notable clay specialists we've got Ferrer retiring we've got Tommy Robredo stuck in at challenger level rankings Nic- Nicolas Almagro is retiring or has retired so some of the guys who used to own the South American swing are not a factor anymore so that means somebody has to win those tournaments. I mean, Four guys are going to be semifinalists at all these events, and any one of those, any one of those semifinal berths is going to feel like a breakthrough to pretty much anyone who's not who's not seated at these tournaments. So I guess we, we could have had a South American swing where Diego Schwartzman won everything, Dominic Team lost to him in all the finals, and you had some predictable guys in the semifinals. But it doesn't take much to to have breakthrough results. I, I guess there, there there's a lot of it seems like there's there's more opportunities for breakthroughs than there are players we we think are primed for them, which is a recipe for surprises like Laszlo Gera and Auger Ali Asim on clay and the the many things we've seen in on in the smaller clay court events this year. The one other thing that struck me is with a lot of these guys we're talking about who have been strong on clay and have very high uh, clay elos. Their 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 overall elo rating is still elo ranking is still quite low. Uh, the two guys who just played the final in Munich, Garin and Berrettini, are now in the top twenty in elo. So even though th- it's really striking that they've entered the top ten in clay elo, you might think you could write them off in, in terms of their overall impact on the tour, but. Either they're better than we think overall, or they're so good on clay that they're now actually like among the twenty 
best players overall in the ATP, which which is to me even more stunning. Or option three, Elo has a hard time dealing with guys who are who, whose playing schedule is is heavily tilted towards one surface. Because uh, you get credit in overall Elo for every result, no matter what surface, and if they're only playing on their best surface, they're going to have better results. Exactly, and if if someone is a hard court specialist, I don't think that's a problem because if imagine you're Sam Query coming up through the challenger ranks, you're going to play only on hard courts, and then you're eventually going to get to the point where you can get into any tournament you want, and you're going to continue to pretty much play on hard courts. So your your hard court based elo at challenger qualifying 250 level is a good indication of where it's going to be when you crack the top 20. But if you look at what Christian Garin has played over the last 52 weeks or, or more. Elo's going to take a small amount. Uh, there's going to be a small amount of his previous results included as well. It's mostly on clay. And until his ranking is up to where it's just now gotten, he doesn't even have an opportunity to play in a lot of tour-level hardcore events, at least the certainly not the mandatory ones, even some of the 500s. So with Garin and Berrettini, I think we're going to see what we saw with Cecchinato last year. Like you've commented a couple times that Cecchinato seemed to make a real effort on hard court. He he played more hard court events than he probably had to, uh, but his ranking got him into them. But he didn't really he didn't win very much. I mean, he made the effort, but he's he established himself as a clay court specialist. Let's charitably say about his hard court performance, and. If Garin and Berrettini go do the same thing for the rest of the year after the French Open, maybe they, they're not going to be expected to win a lot of those matches, but they probably aren't. So I think we might see their ELO step back as their schedule sort of converges with the average tour regular schedule. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether that means a drop of 20 ELO points or 100 ELO points from where they are but it seems like it's something, unless they are primed for a serious breakthrough and maybe Berrettini or Garin or both are are ready to start winning matches on hard courts. I, I don't think so, but in, do you think there's reason to be more optimistic than that, Carl, that maybe maybe they are going to be like consistent top 20 type threats on other surfaces as well? Well, Berrettini really interests me in, in for, the, for this question, both because he has some decent results already on hard courts in the last 12 months. Um, nothing extraordinary where you'd say he's one of the 20 best players in the world, but he beat uh, Kachanov and Verdasco in consecutive matches, and Sofia made the semis. Um, he, you know, made he qualified in Beijing and, and won a round. He uh, won a couple rounds in Winston-Salem. Again, nothing where you, you, you see that and think this is this is a real threat on those surfaces, but it's not like he's just showing up because that's the only tournament available and then losing in the first round. Um, and he's got a big game. He's, he's, he's tall. He hits a lot of aces. He, uh, he has a forehand that's probably loopier than is ideal for hard courts, but it's, it's definitely a weapon. Um, so yeah, I could imagine him, um, being relevant at, at on surfaces that aren't, that aren't clay and he's going to have, as you point out, way more opportunities to play these tournaments and, and not play qualifying at a, at a non mandatory tournament than he used to. Yeah, I agree. Especially with the Berrettini serve, it's a huge weapon. His first title was last summer. I think it was in Gestad. Um, 
or maybe Kitzbühel, I forget, but one, one of those two fifty. Gestad. Gestad, okay. So, so that's one of the higher altitude events of the whole season. So I, I'm not sure whether the surface itself is particularly quick, but it tends to favor players who, who hit harder because of the altitude. So I, uh, that was my first exposure to Berrettini, and it didn't seem like an accident that that was his breakthrough. He's, it seems like there's this this very small class of players that's, now that I say it, it's going to be very difficult to define, but a small class of players who are comfortable on clay, but their game is maybe better suited for hard courts. So they, they've they've got big shots, but maybe they're just more used to, to, to playing on clay. And for that type of player, then a tournament like Gestad or maybe even Madrid, which is also high altitude, is perfect because you get some of the benefit of hitting hard, but you still get to play on clay. So he broke through there. Uh, it felt like Budapest was playing a little bit quick also, and that was another another strong performance for Berrettini. Even Munich maybe was on, on the fast side. Uh, so that that's encouraging. I mean, I'm not sure whether we could construct a study to see whether players on fast clay were particularly likely to transfer their success over to hard courts. Um, that well, I remember the the guy who won on blue clay in Madrid ended up having some good hardcore results after that too. Uh, was that Schwartzman? Exactly. Um, you, you mentioned a small class of players that Berrettini was in. Who who else were you thinking of? I was hoping you wouldn't ask. Sure. <laughs> it I, might be a class of one. Well, it, it it's tricky because it, it, is Jerry maybe another? Maybe, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure what to think about his game. He, he could definitely be. He's, he's got the big serve. The other interesting thing I was, I was thinking watching the Munich final is, actually, with the Munich final and the Estrial final with Pablo Cuevas was the importance of different types or just simply different directions of serves. And it, again, this is something we could test. I didn't even think about it until now, but. I get the sense that there's a lot more wide serves on clay and a lot more tee serves on hard courts. Does that seem right, or at least plausible, Carl? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's also plausible, I think, that that there are players who are a lot better at one than the other. Like Pablo Cuevas seems to be a pro at the wide serve, especially in the ad court. And lots of lots of clay court guys have developed their their ad court kickers into a, a work of art. Uh, and Berrettini doesn't really hit the kicker, but I can I can see him hitting a lot of big wide serves. Jari's tricky because he, he does seem to be comfortable on clay, but he hits a lot of tee serves. Maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe it's just tactical. Um, but Berrettini fits the mold. In, Philip Kohlschreiber's had some good results on hard court. Sorry, on clay rather. And you don't think of him as a big hitter, but he he does have a lot of oomph behind his serve. I think he fits in that category. Um, I resent the implication that I don't think of Philip Kohlschreiber as a big hitter. Yeah, I really need to start being more snobbish and saying one thinks. You <laughs> think, you're, you're going to call me on it. Um, Sitsapas, who won in Estrel this past week, I, he fits that mold as well. I mean, he, he's, he's got a huge game, and he's comfortable on clay courts. He's managed to, to get some good results on the hard as well. But... You can imagine him being very successful on clay with with the sort of game he has and the apparent comfort he has on the surface. But but it's tricky. I mean, I think a lot of the guys who could be in that category maybe they just 
decided to focus on hard courts instead. Or at some point in their their teen years, they shifted their focus to hard courts because that's where the money and most of the tour is. By the way, an alternate name for this podcast going forward could be, I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> yeah. Also, title of your sex tape. Uh, so. So. Awkward moments on Tennis Abstract Podcast number 60. I'm a huge Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan, and that's the, the running gag on that show is Andy Sandberg always. His comeback is always title, title your sex tape. Until now, I haven't been able to use it myself, and now I'm questioning whether I should. Uh, okay, so Garin Berrettini. Interesting thing about Garin is he's not playing in Madrid, which he might have done anyway because he's played a lot of tennis lately. He's decided not to play Rome. I, I'm guessing with his ranking, he wouldn't have gotten straight in, so he would have either asked for a wild card or played qualifying. But he decided to, to take the extra rest and not play Rome. So we have this situation where one of the hottest clay court players on tour, maybe the hottest clay court player on tour, isn't playing Madrid and Rome, which is really the the main showcase of the whole season, aside from Roland Garros. And I think this is a pretty extreme case. If we, if we go back through the years, we can probably find some other players who have very good clay court seasons and don't make the cut to one or both. But it would be rare. Norm, normally players are, are in a little better position than that. But... I think I've raised this issue before, Carl, that there are, the entry system is surface neutral. So you either got the overall ranking or you don't. But for a clay court tournament, especially a slow one like Rome, it seems like we should get the clay court specialists in there. I mean, it, it, do you think that there's, there's room for improvement in the system to, to get guys who are not making to get clay court specialists who don't make the cut into the clay court masters? Definitely. Um, I think the surface specific entry in the past has really pissed off the guys who aren't surface specialists and feel like this is why we have a 52 week system. We have a consistent system throughout the year. Sometimes it favors you. Sometimes it doesn't, but this is the number next to our name. And I, my guess is the ATP does not want to go down that path. Although I think that was really a grand slam uh, path, not a, not a tour level path, but it's just, it's just kind of an ugly argument. Whereas there is already the op- I mean, there are wild cards, but beyond that, I think we've talked about this opportunity of like, if players have done well in recent tournaments that can get them in, even if their ranking didn't by the time of the cutoff. So I'm wondering if there, there's a way, given that surface, um, like surface tournaments bunched together on the calendar that, we could use that approach to basically solve for, for what you're describing. Like if someone has had a run like Garina's had, if we can reward that putting aside their surface specific ranking, just, Hey, you may, you just won a title recently and we want all title winners on clay this year to, to get directly into the tournament, like something to that effect. Yeah. It, it, it would need to be broader than the current special entry system. And for those of you who aren't familiar, special entries are, I, I think there's one or two draw places held back at, at 250s and 500s. So if someone who's entered in qualifying makes it to, I think, the semifinals the week before and thus can't play qualifying, then they get a special entry into that tournament. 
And it happens fairly often, especially when there's weeks of, of 250s and 500s strung together. Um, and it does start to address the problem we're talking about. So if someone is is really hot or improving very fast, then they get into more tournaments than they would otherwise. But one problem there is, for one thing, if you're not used to playing five matches in a week, then that's the time you'd normally want to take a week off. Um, or, or even if you had made the draw, you would have pulled out. And it only applies to the one week following. So, so Carl, your idea, if we... If we if we give a free pass to anybody who's won a tournament, I mean, maybe another way to do it would be to have to have a couple of special entry spots that instead of giving those spots to players who did well the week before, give them to the, the two highest-ranked players now who didn't make the cut at the entry date, which is six weeks prior. So Benoit Pair, for instance, didn't make the cut to Madrid, had to play qualifying in Madrid, but in the meantime he won the tournament in Marrakesh, so his ranking was up to 44. That would get him in now. So by this system, Benoit Pair would have gotten into Madrid, uh, probably. I haven't hashed out the details or looked at the details, so maybe that's... No, but I'm, I'm almost sure you're right about that. And it, it would also kind of solve the problem in the sense that we're talking about like a six-week lag, right? Is that the, yep, the cutoff? So typically within those six weeks, results are going to be many of the results will be on the same surface. So it will get at who's hot and also who's been good specifically on this surface and uh, and still use the ranking system. So, yeah, I like that idea. And it would be even better if we took those special entry uh, draw spots out of the wildcard pool. So kill two birds with one stone. Oh, I thought you were going to say and give them to Jack Sock. Of course, that is what I would say. Ha- have we heard anything about Jack Sock lately? Is he coming back? Uh, I have I have not seen too many results, no. Well, I know he's not back. I, I haven't heard anything about his injury recovery. since I, I knew he was injured after Australia, but didn't know whether that was pending. We do have some some guys coming back, Del Potro's in Madrid, and not from injury, but Federer's back in Madrid. I, I want to talk about that, but maybe we'll save that until we've gone through this week's results. So with that in mind, let's, let's speed along a little bit. Um, the other men's event, I, I mentioned this in passing already, but Stefano Tsitsipas won in Estoril, beating out Pablo Cuevas, which was a, a fun match with two one-handed backhands. Um, do you think, Carl, that, that Tsitsipas is, is a legit threat on clay as well as hard courts? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think before his breakthrough in Australia, a lot of his best results had been, had been on clay. Um, well, certainly, so, certainly, I think he chose to play on clay a lot at the challenger level and had some success, had some early success there. So it's it's certainly not an issue of, of familiarity or comfort on the surface. Um, it's nice to see Cuevas making that, that making this deep run. He's he's had a rough time of it lately. I think his ranking was down to seventy seven or something, uh, but. He had to get in as a lucky loser, but he did race to the final. Uh, another player of note in the Estoril draw was Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who is Spanish, but I think his parents are Russian and Swedish, something like that. And really electric player, made a run to the semis, beating Monfils in the quarters, uh, and has also been known to mix in an underarm serve here and there. 
one of the greatest moments of the, the semifinal against Cuevas was the when the commentator was just sort of idly talking about Cuevas's experience and saying that there, there's not much that this guy hasn't seen. And then, right then, Davidovich Fokina throws in an underarm serve. Uh, it wasn't very good, and I think Cuevas won the point, but, you know. Uh, Next time a commentator says, you couldn't script this, remember how scripted that seemed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it's good to see Sitsipas make this improvement. Maybe maybe we'll see him with another good run at one of these Masters events. He did. It, it's easy to forget, but he made the Barcelona final last year, uh, losing to Nadal there. That was one of his his breakthrough events last season. Um, on the women's side, one name in particular I want to talk about is Johanna Kanta. The Rabat tournament was decided between Maria Sakari and Kanta, and, and Kanta, I think, was up a set in a break. Sakari came back and, and won it in three. And Yeah, I think Kanta was up 4-2 in the second and won one more game. Yeah, that... that Sounds right. I did watch it, so I should remember better. But it, it, certainly she was in a, a good position to win it. Um, she didn't exactly collapse, but I think Sakari got got stronger under pressure. It's, it's tough to hit past Maria Sakari, and that was a big factor there. And Kanta's never done much on clay. I think I have this right, that this was her first clay court final. Uh, we've... We've talked even a little bit today, but other weeks as well, that that the serve can be a big weapon. I mean, big servers can be quite successful on clay, even though it isn't the game style that you normally associate with a clay court specialist. I mean, do you think that that Conta should have done better over the course of her career on clay courts with the with the big serve that she has? She doesn't. She we. We were talking about big servers earlier who may not seem to have games that are natural for clay but have a lot of familiarity with it. And that seems like part of what's holding her back is just that that's not what she grew up playing on or has played as much on. Uh, the, the game itself, the shots, are are pretty effective. Um, and, yeah, maybe this is the year she has the breakthrough. She went straight from her bot to winning her first first round match in Madrid. So that's a, that's a pretty impressive turnaround after five matches. It is. And Sakari was unable to do the same thing. She got a somewhat unfortunate draw with Suarez Navarro in the first round and she lost yesterday. Unfortunately for Conta, it all ends here because did you know who she drew in the second round? I do. Yeah. I think she's got a shot. Mm, she has shots, but <laughs> they will not result in winning very many points against Simona Halep. I'm confident about that. Now, this is the first time we've had reason to talk about Conte in a while. She's got this this final on clay. Uh, there was the... I mean, it was a lot of press in the UK when the, the Brits won their Fed Cup tie a couple weeks ago. Conte was a big part of that, so they're promoted to World Group 2. So Conte's back in the news. She's not exactly back at the top of the game. I think her ELO's in the very back end of the top 20. And it wasn't that long ago that Conta, she hit a career peak ranking of number four. Uh, she won some titles, lots of good upsets. And granted, it's, 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 tough to, it's tough to separate truth from British media madness, but 
she was seemed to be a legitimate contender to win Wimbledon. There was even this outside shot she could emerge from the field and become a number one. And instead, it was pretty much all downhill from that peak. I mean, within nine months, she was out of the top 20. She's fallen considerably further since then. I mean, do you think that, that were we wrong about Kanta then? Were the, were the seeds of her, her decline, like, evident for those of us who were looking for it? Did, did, did you, do you think that we should have known then that she wasn't really a, a top 10 level player? Yeah, I, I don't think there were obvious signs. I, I would be interested in what to make generally of somebody who breaks through at the age she did. That you know, it was a pretty steep rise for someone, uh, especially in the WTA versus ATP, who was you know past the age when that typically happens for someone. Like, is does that typically mean? okay, just a, a late bloomer and they're going to go on to have the same kind of career that someone would who rises so quickly into such a high ranking? Or is it more likely to be a fluke? Or a fluke is a harsh word, but more likely to be short-lived. Yeah, that is, that's tricky. Um, and I think part of the problem with, with even trying to answer that is that the times are changing. A lot of the, the players who are most notable for having late breakthroughs are the ones doing it now. Like I, I, I wrote something about Miki Buzarnescu, I think about a year ago. I mean, she's a Romanian who had a successful juniors career, dealt with lots of injuries, and finally, I think she didn't even break into the top 100 until she was 29 or something like that, eventually got to about the top 20. And that's super extreme. I mean, she was, she was breaking records with every new ranking threshold she passed. So it's, it's tough to know who to compare her to. But even Kanta was showing up on some of the lists for comparable players. Because even though Kanta was not that old when she was breaking through, she was older than most players in WTA history. So you can look at those lists and say, okay, she's one of the top 10 oldest women to break into the top 10. I don't know if that's true. I'm just making that up. I think it's true. But... You can look at that and say she's one of the oldest, therefore we can infer that she's not going to climb much higher. But I mean, in, in, in this case, you would have been right, but I'm just not sure whether we have the, the evidence to point one way or the other, whether there's, there's something different going on now that makes it possible. I, I, we have talked a lot about aging trajectories in the last several episodes of this show, and one thing that I have found is that even though the, the peak age remains around 23, players stay closer to their peak, uh, well into their 20s, close to age 30. So something has changed, whether that's enough to accommodate a player breaking through at 25 or 26 and continuing to climb, I don't know. Unfortunately, we can't run a lot of random tests on the, the parallel universes with the same 100 best women tennis players in the world. Uh, that would be it would be a tricky experimental design to get past the ethics board. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you think we'll see her I mean, it, it, with a result like this? Will we see her make some progress again? Maybe she's poised here for a better grass court season than she's had lately on a surface that she's more comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't read that much into her results in Rabat, it wasn't, it wasn't that strong of a lineup of players who she, who she beat. 
Um, but you know, she's still, she's in the top 50. She's playing all the big tournaments. She's top 50 overall. She's, she's better than that on, on grass. Uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if she, if she had some good wins on grass this year. And it's really striking, like how, how much her, her path would would square with like the more traditional kind of narrative about a career that you and I would be skeptical of like things were really going well through the Wimbledon semi against Venus Williams a couple of years ago and so much expectation that a British woman could win Wimbledon and she lost that match and that's that's really where you can trace the the beginning of the downhill for her um so I don't I don't put much stock in that but it does show how abruptly things can turn around in one direction, which means they could turn around in the other as well. Yeah, maybe she has sort of positive media support after the, the Fed Cup success, and maybe that will propel her back a little higher up in the ranks. I, I, did you see what her current ranking is on the WTA list? Uh, is it 41? Okay, that, that sounds right. I'm, I'm not sure whether that's from last week or from today but in any case I, I think I saw that she's in the top 20 in ELO so so ELO likes her more than the, the WTA computer does which is probably more encouraging for her future success uh, the other women's event this past week I don't think we have much to say about that it was a, a very anonymous from the perspective of those of us who are, uh, are not really intently following women's tennis the, the final was decided between Jill Teichman of Switzerland and Carolina Mukova of Czech Republic. Uh, the biggest story from this tournament was the retirement of Lucy Safarova. And Carl, I know you're a big Safarova fan. I forget whether we talked about her not quite retirement earlier. I think we, we didn't get to it around the Australian Open. But in great doubles player, enjoyable singles player to watch, really, I think she peaked at number four in the singles rankings. I mean, she's someone who will absolutely be missed from the tour. Yes, yes. It came within a set of winning the French Open against Serena Williams. Yeah, that's quite an accomplishment in itself. Um, and really one of the best doubles players of the last several years. I think that her... Yeah, she won five five slam titles with Maddox Sands. That's, that's really impressive. And I don't really know what... Is, is Maddox Sands injured and trying to come back right now, or... I've seen more of her in the commentary box than on the court lately. I haven't seen any news about what her status is. Yeah, I mean, I think she came back enough. She did play some tournaments, right? Yeah, and it, it's always a little distressing when you when you see players who are doing things other than playing. That's a, usually a sign that they're not working full time on getting back. But uh, hope, hopeful, hopefully, we'll see her come back and play. I know she had a partner lined up for this year in in Demi Shore. But, um, but injury has kept her back. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a little harsh about the uh, that they're not they're, the time they're spending in the commentary box is not time coming back because, first of all, usually when often when current players are in in the box, they're they're at tournaments and they're also like playing in the legends draws and they're like hitting on the courts and it's probably not a bad thing to be watching tennis whatever form you're you're doing it in. Um, so I think sometimes it's smart players have used it as part of their return. Yeah, I guess it's possible. 
I just figure if you are if, if you're already pursuing your post retirement career path, then maybe it's not the best sign for pre retirement. Yeah. But well, she hasn't well. played since the Australian Open, so I guess she's had a lot of time off the court to figure out what's next. Well, Bethany, if you're listening, please prove us wrong. Please win the 2020 calendar year Grand Slam with really whatever partner you want. Um, I would probably have some suggestions, especially if you could bring Lucy back from retirement, but we're flexible on who the partner is. Love to see that. I'd also count it if you won the mix with Jamie Murray. Great team. Or Andy Murray. Right, sure. Either speaking, Murray. Speaking of returns from injury, uh, we don't really know what he's up to, but it seems with every time we see an Instagram announcement of hitting with somebody, it seems like it's a little closer, a little more practical, that he's at least going to make an appearance on the singles court. Um, but the big story this week is is not even Safarov's retirement and definitely not whatever stage we're at in Andy Murray's comeback, but the David Ferrer retirement. This is it, It's been sort of a, a year-long farewell party for Ferrer. We've known for a while this would be his last tournament, but this is his home tournament. This is the final one. Uh, Lots of players rightfully celebrating his career. And I I think that as much as people are are giving him credit for all of his many accomplishments, and and maybe he's a future Hall of Famer, I'm not sure. uh, If anything, I think people might be understating how good he has been. Would you... Would you think, Carl, is he the best player without a Grand Slam? The best men's player? Is there a woman who would obviously be better? Uh, well, it would just help narrow the scope of what I have to consider right now. Um, best Spanish player born in the yeah. 80s? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I know you're a big Dementieva fan, so... Always yeah, have to I think, consider her. I think career-wise, you have to give Ferrer the nod over Dementia, but that was the first name that came to my mind as well. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it did, and I know it's it's a tough open-ended question, and the, any any all-time great question, whether you're looking for number one or number one out of a slightly smaller category, it's it's fraught with difficulty even to know where to begin. But I mean, he's he's definitely in the conversation, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we're having it, so he sure is. Um, no, I mean he's. He's always he, – since his peak or, or since kind of the end of his major contention, he, he's been the top pick of mine when I've, when I've thought about it. Um, I, I'm just – I'm hesitating because I'm trying to remember if there was someone who's going pro cost them a chance at ever winning one and otherwise was like an all-time great. But I, I think all those – all the best of the Barnstormers did get a slam title at some point. Um, and we can probably take them out of the conversation. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a different a different category. Different category. Then, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone has a very strong case. Like, I think it, what, probably what hurts Ferrer the most is that he peaked at number three, because I think there are some who peaked at two and, and maybe one without a slam title. And, and then there's that he only made the one slam final, and I think there are some who made two. But... Yeah, I mean, it's just the the body of work is incredible. The number of titles, number of finals, the success in the end on all surfaces. He had some good grass court results as well. That was always his his heart his toughest surface. Uh, he became one of the best five, maybe even better hard court players uh, in his prime as well. Uh, just you know, we tournament in, tournament out, very few bad weeks. Um, 
lots of basically owned everybody outside the big four, um, made a case sort of like Andy Murray did a notch above him as someone who in a different era would have won a whole lot more, which is kind of what you would expect from the best player to never win a slam title. Yeah, if 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 there had been no Nadal, um, do you think Ferrer would have been a multi French Open winner? I mean, it's hard because he he definitely lost a lot of French Open matches that weren't to Nadal. But at, at the least, I think playing at his peak in 2013, making the final, um, he would have he would have been the favorite. I think against most players in that in that final. Uh, I mean, I guess Nadal beat Djokovic. Djokovic probably would have been favored against Ferrer, but it, it would have been close. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that that what's holding Ferrer back a bit is he he really was owned by those guys. I guess with Murray it was closer, but with with Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer it was so one sided that um, he needed to avoid all of them to to win big big events in general. Um, but I still am so impressed by what he did against everyone else and what he did overall. Yeah. Uh, I think another, another thing, this is something our friend Jeff McFarland has pointed out that people tend to talk about Ferrer's accomplishments as, as being, as overcoming a lack of talent. And I think that's tremendously unfair. Like to say that, I don't think you could accomplish what he did without a lot of talent. I mean, I think when people say that they're, they're trying to phrase it as a compliment that it's, it's a tribute to his mental strength and persistence and, and all this stuff that he's succeeded. But it's, I think it's wrong to, to say that the talent wasn't there because there was an enormous amount of talent there. And maybe that talent would have gotten him to a peak of seven instead of a peak of three and maybe fewer tournament wins. But um, a, a really, really great player. And, and to that point, made the very most of what he had to work with. Yeah, it's it's a weird. So th- there's a few weird things about about that claim about Ferrer. One is, I think the closest thing to something reasonable that it might mean is that he, what he accomplished, what he did, despite his lack of height. Yeah. Um. I mean, his serve was often cited as one of the weakest in the top, whatever he was in, top five, top ten, top twenty, top fifty. It was always one of the weakest, and. And yet he had a very respectable hold rate because he knew how to use his serve. And more than that, he backed it up. And height to me is not talent. It's just a thing you're, you're born with or you're not. Um, and in fact, it takes more talent in the way I think of talent to overcome uh, a lack of height. Like I think the best shot makers on tour are often the guys who are below average in height. I mean, this applies to a lesser extent in the WTA as well, just because the smaller range of height and less importance in in the serve. But um, you know, Ferrer's ability once the point was neutral, the point was not neutral with Ferrer, and that that was largely talent. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, often what people mean when they say that is, well player worked really hard and this is the weird way we're going to compliment them for that. Um, but there's got, that's gotta be a talent too. Like you have to have a talent for ability to take abuse and to, to take monotony and to be willing to give up the other parts of your life to work really hard, not just at your skills and your, and your game, but at staying healthy. And maybe that's not what people usually think of when they think of talent, but I think that's an incredible talent. 
Yeah, and it, we're veering into territory of one of my one of my hobby horses here. That uh, I started talking about this last fall when I when I noticed that the aging curve in chess was not that different from the aging curve in tennis, and obviously it's not because bodies are falling apart. You can be a very good chess player with a knee injury, for example. Uh, but it suggests that there's something non-physical going on that that these very high-level activities have in common. And I think I, I wrote something about it last fall or winter where I, I settled on the word focus, for lack of something better. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about. Like, what we normally talk about when we talk about Ferrer's focus is, like, his going after every point. Like, never letting, letting his guard down in a match, but... As you point out, Carl, that that extends to like making the most of practice time, um, making the most of rehab time to make sure that your your body stays put together, and that's the sort of thing that like that would apply to becoming a great chess player or a great violinist or a great tennis player, and that's that's not the sort of thing that gets you on highlight reels um, because it, it, we don't even see most of it; we're not aware of most of it, but that might have more to do with with elite level performance than all this other stuff, which is why we're talking about Ferrer in a way that we'll probably never talk about the Benoit Pairs or Nick Curioses of the world who seem to be kind of their their profile is in the opposite direction. Like lots of, of visible talent, but maybe not as much of the the invisible underlying skills and focus that, that translate into a great career. We'll miss you, David. We will. Do you, do you think he's one of the top 10 best all-time on clay? This time, men only? Oh. <laughs> Again, I'm searching the memory banks. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, if you put in the multiple French Open winners, how far down the list of 10 do you get? Is that like six guys? who, who Seven? Maybe it's more than that. That um, sounds about right. I guess it depends how far back you go. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's like if we're talking about best, if he if he might be best to never win a Grand Slam title and is likely, in fact, to be that that person, that man, then he's even more likely to be the best to never win the French Open, uh, best you know clay player to never win the French Open. Uh, so it, it would make sense that he'd be kind of around number ten in, in the fringes of the top ten. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to try to quantify some of this stuff. I'm guessing that he would rank quite a bit higher than many of the people who did win the French Open once. Yeah, there, exactly. There were some, some fluky guys who did that. I guess there are a few solid clay guys who didn't win the French, like Guillermo Coria, um, Nalbandian also. Uh, I guess Nalbandian's one guy in the conversation for best player without a slam. Yeah, he's always in, in the list. I, I, I think Ferrer's overall career accomplishments are slightly better. But, yeah, Nalbandian won some Masters and had some big wins over the top players. Yeah, that's a classic uh, peak versus career sort of mm-hmm. distinction. Where if, if, if you lean towards career, then it's tough to imagine anybody beating Ferrer. But depending on how much you weight the peak, you can start throwing in some other people like Nalbandian. Um, so a couple other things for Madrid this week to watch. Uh, we're going to spare you the, the quarter-by-quarter draw breakthrough, draw breakdown. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, Federer's back. Delpo is back, we hope. It seems like Delpo is always one, um, one stubbed toe away from being back off tour again, but he, he's in the draw. 
Um, last time we talked about this, Carl, you weren't expecting much from from Federer at the couple of clay events he's playing. Is that still how you feel about it? Um, yeah, I mean, my average expectation is probably between one and two wins, but uh, I think there's a lot of variance. I, I don't, I don't know, like, how much has he been practicing on clay? No idea. Yeah. I mean, he like there's one there may be two players, maybe three in the world who can who have like a compound where they can practice on anything with anyone without people knowing. And Federer's one of them. Well, there could be an interesting match for his first time out in Madrid. He has a bye in the first round and he'll play the winner of Gasquet and Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who we were talking about earlier, coming from his great week in Estoril. Uh, it would be fascinating to see Davidovich Fokina on that stage. I I wonder a little bit whether he will play or whether he'll be able to put together a win against Gasquet since he was dealing with some injuries in his semifinal loss in Estoril. Uh, but that would. Be I mean, I think Gasquet would be pretty interesting too. Gasquet, Federer, on clay have had some good matches over the years. Yeah, that's true. I'm I'm not really sure what to think about Gasquet's level at this point either, since he's been out for a while as well. Um. But it was good to see him back on court as well. Another interesting round two, well, two more interesting round two matches are already set. One of them is Nadal's first match against Felice Auger Aliasim. And another one is Dominic Team against Riley Opelka, who, despite being American, managed to qualify and win his round one match. I think it was earlier today, just now. Um, so, so. No easy matches at the Masters. Some interesting challenges for the, the top guys to deal with as they they kick off their tournament. Um, yeah, I think it'll be the Opelka team matchup on on Opelka serve will be interesting in terms of like positioning and placement. We were talking before about T versus wide, and and team can stay f- so far back at times. And Opelka, I I think pretty much has every serve he wants in large part because of his height. So um, how, how they kind of navigate that. I mean, it'll probably just be two tie breaks, but <laughs> still be, could be interesting to watch. Yeah. If anyone can avoid the tie breaks against Opelka, it probably is team. Maybe Opelka will be inspired by some of the antics lately and see how far back team is standing and throw in some underarm serves for us. That's something to look forward to a, a guy who's six ten hitting some underarm serves. Yeah, when I said Opelka, I think, has every serve, that's probably one he doesn't, now that I think about it. Maybe, maybe he's been watching Kyrgios on TV. He's tinkering around at home. I mean, he hasn't had much else to do during the first few weeks of the clay season. Yeah. I'm optimistic, that's all. Okay, we've got, what, two minutes left? So, really quick, there's a, a paper that came out today. It, it, I don't think the paper came out today. There was an article in the Telegraph about it. But the, the paper, some academics constructed a, a study to look at how much grunting potentially affects opponents. And the way they set up the study is they, they took a group of 30 club-level players and they, they took a video of a, a Nadal-Ferrer match from a few years ago and artificially raised and lowered the levels of some of the grunts and they asked the the players in, or the the subjects of the study to estimate where the ball was going, basically. And what they found was that the, the the volume of the grunt affected what players expected from from the trajectory of the ball. So, 
the finding was was summarized as, as that grunting opens the door to trickery that that it, it can disguise what's really happening because players are are interpreting the the grunt to mean something about where the ball's going, how fast it's going, how far it's going, and what they need to do in response. Um, I'm not overwhelmed by the impressiveness of, of this study or how much it's telling us, but Carl, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are at, at the first look here. Well, I think it definitively proves that club-level players would have difficulty reading the trajectory of balls hit by two of the best players of the last 20 years. Um, yeah, it's not... <laughs> You know, Nadal and Ferrer is a funny example because they played each other so many times and played other players so many times. It just seems like they would be so much less likely to be fooled or tricked by by a ball. I think there's probably an interesting study to be done about whether club players are, are using grunting as a tactic against each other and that that would be a more realistic thing to test using actual like players at their level and what they do. Um, cause you know, I know it's becoming a more common, uh, phenomenon at lower levels of tennis and I've, I've heard it at adjacent courts, but wait a second. Yeah, I don't, I, we have to talk about this. This is, this is not what I was expecting. Um, when, when you say you've heard about it, like, are, are there people who are tactically grunting at club level? Sorry. I've, I didn't say I heard about it. I heard it. I've heard grunting more and more at adjacent okay. courts. Are they using it tactically? I don't know. I have made the observation others have of like, well, that didn't look like a very high effort shot you just made. And <laughs> yet that was slice, very loud. my friend. <laughs> but on the other hand, many people say it helps with their breathing. That seems plausible. Uh, maybe I should try it. So uh, it, it just seems like grunting is more common at lower levels. I, I've, I have heard that anecdotally, not specifically that it's tactical. So it'd be an interesting thing to study what its effect is at those levels using grunts from those levels, but using professional level sounds artificially manipulated on club level players, I don't think tells us much about either the club level game or the pro game. Yeah, it seems like a, a study using mice extrapolated to conclusions about humans. That's that's what I see the gap between club level players and professional tennis players. Like it's it's suggestive, but you haven't certainly haven't proven anything. You haven't even really come that close to proving anything. It just seems like that it's not a gradual difference. There's some there's some serious qualitative difference between club level pros and or club level players and and pros. And I think that extends to some of the other things that that we complain about people misunderstanding about the pro game, just like the the influence of momentum, uh, all the different ways that that people assume that momentum is a big factor because it's a big factor in their own game. Um, I think the pros are beyond a lot of that and. I think that's probably true of the grunting as well, because these guys have spent a decade or more dealing with grunts from from very high quality opponents. Uh, but I guess some research is, is is better than none. It gives us something to talk about. Maybe there will be more. Maybe someone can try to replicate this study with maybe former pros or, or challenger level pros or something like that. That would be more interesting, I think, to me. All right, so like I said, Madrid's second round is underway for the women already. Uh, looks like a great tournament. We'll be back in a week to wrap that up and maybe talk about where we're going from there with the Rome Masters, and the, the back-to-back weeks of, of Masters events and women's premieres. So thank you, Carl, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And thanks, everyone, for listening. 
We'll see you next week.